title of my message tonight is 9-11 or 463. You know what 9-11 is, right? the emergency, you need help, or you're in some kind of a situation where somebody needs to help you or come and get you or protect you. Well, 463 is where you'd find the letters G-O-D. So what I'm talking about, when it comes to dire straits or difficult times in your life or difficult moments, do you cry out to God for help or do you look for help somewhere else or do you find yourself languishing and wanting to give up? I know I speak on this subject a lot, but let me tell you something. There's a lot of people that have a lot of spiritual skirmishes and battles and wars, and they can be depressing, and they can hold you down. They can take the air out of you. They can make it hard for you to be joyful and excited about Jesus. They can make you drag around because, you see, when a person stays down, it's an indication you really don't know what to do. That's why you call 9-11 in this world. You don't know what to do. You're at the end of whatever you can do. Otherwise, you wouldn't call them. Well, as a Christian, calling God is something that we should always do. Because throughout the Psalms in the Bible, you see where great men and men who got a need met cried out to God. They called upon the Lord. They came to God, and he was their ever-present help in time of need. And I want to talk on that kind of a theme tonight because one of the facts of life is, whether you're a Christian or not, but especially in the Christian context, we get weighted down in this world. We have what the world calls a bad day, or we have more bad days than we would like to admit. Days that we do get stressed, and you feel weighted down to where you don't have much, sometimes much desire to do anything about it, because in this age, it looks to me like the easiest thing for somebody to do is quit. If things get a little tight out there, just go hide yourself and get out of it and give up. You don't have to deal with it. You never go anywhere. Your character is not much, but that's the way a lot of people deal with it. They don't care. But I'll guarantee you one thing that as Christians, all of us have to care. All of us have to care about how we deal with adversities and difficulties and stress-oriented things in our life, things that confuse us, things that have a tendency to bewilder us because we say, why, God? This is not right. That's an indication you need to dial 463. Lord, help me. He told us to do that. He told us to call upon him. Because the truth of it is, we don't always know what to do. And sometimes we let things get ahead of us and overwhelm us. Now, by the, the fact that you're here means that you got over it and you came through it and you're still with it. But a lot of times things just happen. You remember the verse in 1 Corinthians 10? You don't have to turn to this. You know it by heart. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Remember that? So we're promised, just like in John 16, 33, the last verse 
in John chapter 16, the verse before Jesus went to the garden, I guess his last recorded teaching. He said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But in this world, you, especially you, you will have tribulation. Adversity and difficulty will never escape you. It's going to be a part of your life, and you have to deal with it. And how you deal with it identifies you. You're either somebody that is dependable and we can count on, or you're a quitter, or you're lazy, or you're not even trying. But that's who you are, and you prove who you are through these testings that God sovereignly and divinely allows to come into your life. These are things that identify us. I think God makes sure that trouble comes our way. But he said he would not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you're able. So he's going to take you to your limits. To where you really don't feel like you can go any further. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul told the church, he said, I don't want you all to worry about us and be that concerned about us. Paul said, we did have the sentence of death in us. Paul, in a shipwreck and all the difficulties that they had, just bringing the gospel. And Paul never once said, well, why? I'm trying to preach the gospel and advance the kingdom and get people saved. And I'm having all this trouble and it doesn't seem like you're doing anything about it. Christians talk like that. Maybe not out loud, but they do. I'm trying to preach the gospel. I'm trying to do this, and I'm going through this. I'm going through that. I'm upside down half the time, and oh, God. But he said, you know, we had the sentence of death, and we thought we were going to die. I mean, it was that bad at one point. But God was teaching us something. He showed us that we don't trust in ourselves, that we trust in the living God. And he begins to encourage and tell the people, you know, we're examples for you. The life we live is showing you how God really can lift us out of the miry clay and lift us out of our bad situations and give us a, a way of escape, as he said in 1 Corinthians 10, so that we're still here. We don't quit. We don't give up. We get wounded. We got a lot of scars. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me say this, and then I'll come back to Psalm 43. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, to quote verse 3, we were begotten again. That We were made alive unto God, born again unto the purposes and the life that God offers. Now, we learn what that is, but this is what... We are birthed into, out of the world, into the frying pan. I mean, into the, into the ways that God wants for us. And he said in verse 5, who are kept. I like that. You need to underline kept because that's not something he does occasionally. He keeps you. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice. And then what's the next part? Say, even though now. Even though now what? For a season. That's that time that it comes. We learn. And another 
wave comes and another wave. And then it, it just seemed like it never stops. God is continually, as I said Sunday, he is continually identifying you for who you are and how you are. Your circumstances will bring to the surface of your life just who you are. You're a fighter, you're a complainer, you're a quitter. But he, you'll find out. But he'll never allow you to go through something that's designed to just destroy you. He doesn't do that. But he will see to it that you're pinned to the wall and you're tested. And sometimes longer than you think it should be and harder than you thought it was going to be. But he said again in verse 6, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. Does your Bible say that? If need be. Does it sometimes need to be? Look at the person beside you and say, that's right. Well, you didn't do it, but you should have. He said, though now for a season, if need be, you are where? In heaviness. The word means distress. We could say the word vex. That's not a common word, but it's just like you're in a place where you really don't know what to do or how to cope with something. You don't know how to, to cause the power of God to come into your life to change everything. Oh, you've been taught, you know what the Bible says, you just don't know how to make it work. Sometimes just confessing and holding on to God seems like you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. And when that's all you can do. I mean, didn't the Bible say about having done all? Stand. And boy, you feel like I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I'm going to fail. This is going down. Oh, the sentence of death. I'm going to, this is it. Bye. God ain't going to let that happen. He wants you to like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1 about the sentence of death. And he said that we might learn to trust in God and not ourselves. I'll show you an illustration after a while about trusting in yourself instead of God and the disaster that follows. God, I think to me, in my small time I've been here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, God's made it quite clear to us through the years, whether we got it or not. God has made it quite clear to us how to overcome. Now, whether we overcome or not, again, this is what we're going to find out. All the stuff that God's doing is bringing to the surface. What is it he said? The refiner's fire does what? We will be melted. And what's he doing? He's bringing to the surface all the stuff that he can't use. So you can skim it off the top until we can be pure and clean before him. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, he said, think it not strange concerning these fiery trials which might try you. Now, he didn't say might. Come on now. Which are to try you. Did he say which are to try you? They're going to. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you kids. It's going to happen to your parents. You will find yourself through this life as a Christian in fiery trials. They are designed to do something. They are never designed to make you quit. Most people, or maybe a lot of people, do quit. Their attitude is, well, if that's the way God is, I, you know, 
because like Bonnie and I were talking today, most people's perception of God is human, very human. You know, we were talking about love. People see the love of God like they do our love, that God loves the way we love. We love because somebody does good things and smiles at us and is on our side and favors us, and so we're favorable back. We think that God, you know, gives us the license to do a lot of things because we say, well, I, you know, I don't think God would do that. I don't think God's like that. Well, after all, here's how I see it. And we think God's like that, and we live as though that's true. And it's not true. So God brings you to a meeting where you're really awake one night and you're listening and he brings all your error to the surface and you get mad. Because see, that's the kind of person you are. You're very self-centered. Do it my way or I'm not coming back. I don't like being exposed. He's preaching at me. He's attacking me in the church. Call 911. He allows us to go this way and that way, but he's going to bring us to himself. And he said... Think it not strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you as though something strange has happened to you. That's why you say, well, why me? What have I done? Why do I deserve this? I guess Jesus could have said that too. Why am I out here in this lonely desert with all these scorpions and all these animals out here in this wild place that's scary to look at, let alone live in? What have I done wrong? Where did I mess up? Well, so you just mess up at all. I know what you're going to do, but everything you do is going to be recorded so that people who read about you can take heart in the fact that you overcame the world. You're an example for us to follow in your steps. So he said, back to First Peter 1, he said, though now for a season, if necessary, if need be, we, as God's people, are in heaviness, we're in consternation, distress through various trials. So you see, this is a part of life. You're going to be tempted, tested. You will. I have. I have too much. I have felt like there are things that weren't fair. I remember telling the Lord once, if I was you, this wouldn't be going on. It was one of my children years ago, which interpreted means I like to get some sleep. But at least God saw to it. That having heard the truth, you got a chance to experience it. You get a chance now as God watches and all the cloud of witnesses for us, they get to watch having read their examples. Now we get to reveal the kind of person we are. Will I give up and quit? Will I throw in the towel and say it's not fair? Will I back off and compromise because I just don't think? Will I do that? That's not allowed in the Bible to do that. People do it, and they get by with it because so many people do. You're in a crowd, but we can't do it. We put our hand on that plow. We can't even peek back. It's straight ahead. If you don't want to go straight ahead, don't grab the plow because many are called. You know, it's easy to start. Anybody can start this life, but, boy, staying with it. And the reason we say it like that is because there's so many struggles whether it's money or your marriage or your children or whatever it is. There's just so many things that God's already said something about, and we need some help. Now turn to Psalm 43. Psalms 43, verse 2. 
For thou art the God of my strength. Why dost thou cast me off? Do you think God has cast him off? Come on now. God hasn't cast him off. Why would he say that then? Oh, it says in the Bible, God cast him off. Didn't say God cast him off. He said, why have you cast me off? Had God cast him off? How about this crowd over here? Had God ca How about you preachers? Had God cast him off? Well, why would he say that? Because that's how he felt. That was his heart. That's the real you talking. This is no artificial verse quoting to look good. This is the real in the middle of a dark night through heaviness and difficulty. This is the real me. This is how far I've come. This is who I am. Why have you cast me off? He said. And then all he said. He said, why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why do I feel abandoned? Why do I feel like God has forsaken me and set me aside? Am I no longer any good that I failed last week and therefore God is through with me? He's done. Is that what he did? It's not what he said he would do. He wouldn't say that and then in 1 Peter 1 say you're kept. If you're kept, you didn't throw you out. You feel like you've been thrown out because sometimes God withdraws that oozy presence. And you feel empty and all alone. Living water becomes like an old swamp. And you don't feel much giddy up and go. The hands that hang down, they should be up as a matter of doing what you've been taught to do, but you don't feel like doing it, so they hang down because that's the kind of person you really are. You can't get past your feelings and yourself. What if I told you that a lot of Christians are selfish, self-centered, self-serving? They base God about whether or not he deserves my praise on whether or not he's ministering to me to my good. And if that's the way God's going to do it, I just don't, you know. I'm not going to be a hypocrite tonight and raise my hands and go, great, I'm not going to do that. I'd be a hypocrite. You suppose offering a sacrifice of praise is hypocritical? Could you offer a sacrifice of praise if you had a headache? Felt bad. Could you do it then? Had a flat tire going to church, somebody stole your tire. Hit every red light and the people that can't drive are in front of you. They're always in front of you. And you've just had a miserable day. Nothing has gone right for you. Even something inside of you is crying, where's God? Where's the joy of the Lord is my strength? Where's that? Where is that? I don't have it. Do you suppose God ever says, I've taught you what I want you to do, whether you feel like doing it or not. I want you to offer me what I want, whether you want to do it or not, as a way of showing me that you're putting your hope and your trust and your devotion in me instead of yourself. Folks, we're guilty here, just you sitting in this room. You're guilty of not giving God the praise he deserves because you don't feel like it. And you know that's true. You know it's true. It's been a long day and a hard day. And the Bible says if you've had a long day and a hard day, you don't have to worship. 
Yeah. Uh, I forgot where that was. But if you've had a hard day and, and you don't feel good and things are not looking up for you and you didn't get your check this week or somebody stole your purse, therefore thou art exempt from worship. I don't think the Bible says that, do you? It says the opposite. It says count it. Somebody help me in James 1. Count it. Uh, somebody's got to help me. I hear noise, but I don't hear anybody helping me. Count it all what? Joy. Joy. When? When? If y'all going to preach, you got to know that. When? When you encounter what? That's right, divers' trials. You're going to. In Psalm 43, he says, Lord, you are the God of my strength. I haven't cast that away, but why, why, am I, why have you cast me off? Why am I mourning and complaining and grumbling? Because of the enemy. He said in verse 3 and 4, I put this in my word. Lord, talk to me. I need a word from you. Lord, I need a word. Oh, send out your light and your truth. I'm obviously not seeing it. The inspiration inside of me is pretty dull and dead. Lord, do what you do. You've done it many times, but do it again, Lord. I don't want to feel cast down. I don't want to mope and moan and mourn and mumble and grumble and walk through life like that. What do you say in verse 5? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Do you see chapter 42 across the page or is it somewhere else? See, look on the other side of your Bible, on the other page. See, mine's just across the aisle here. In verse 5, why art thou cast down, O my soul? The word means sink low. Why am I sunk low, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted in me, soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh, my God, he said in verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. That's the reality of the human experience on this earth. You will come to that at one day or some point in your life, and it will be an opportunity for you to show us who you are. Are. You can get on the phone and complain and mumble or just yak and yak and yak. Or you can just quietly go before the Lord and just say, I want to thank you, Lord. I know you're in charge. I know you're here. I know you're there. I know you saved me. I remember the day it happened. You haven't left me. You said you would keep me. I know you oversee your word. You won't ever turn back. And Lord, because I believe that, I'm going to worship. Thank you, Jesus. And everything in you feels like, what are you thanking him for? I'm thanking him for saving me as much as anything. I think the great reason to thank God is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why the major reason for rejoicing, we're going to heaven. In the meantime, we're in heaviness on occasion walking through this earth. Now, let me give you a few illustrations tonight. I'll do as brief as I can. I'm not a brief speaker. I never was. I may never be. If that's the confession that you're going to live with, then it's nothing new. But 
I thought we'd have a 40-minute sermon tonight. I really did, but I've probably already taken, oh, 25 minutes. Turn with me for a few illustrations. Turn to David first. Go to David, chapter 1 Samuel 30, David at Ziklag. Remember that? Now, this story you know. I've chosen two or three stories that you know well. I even thought it would be interesting tonight, I didn't, to have all the children, to clear the first three rows and have all the children come up here, and I was going to preach to them, and you all could listen. Or you could text somebody while, you know. But I was going to have the kids come up, and I was just going to preach to them and tell them this story. I like to talk to the kids and act out those stories because I can see it in my own childish mind. I'm a simple-minded man. I am. David and his men, they're not the top of the list when it comes to who is really great. These were base men that kind of ran with David. They're outlaws. They have no place that they live. They have no home to go to at night. The king of Israel is trying to find them so he could kill them all, Saul. So they're constantly moving around. They can't stay anywhere long. They have to hide in caves and thickets and they have to have men watching out for the king's army so they don't get caught. There's no way to live. They're living sort of a nomadic but a warring life. They exist by raiding some of these Philistine compounds or little towns and getting their food and their spoil and bringing it back, and that's what they live on. None of them work. They didn't have a herd of cattle or anything. That's how they lived. They lived by stealing. So they had a little place that was given to them it's called Ziklag, the little area. And so they had their wives and their kids and all their goods, everything they had, they had to take it everywhere they went because, again, they had no home to store it in. They just had to carry everything they owned. They had to take it everywhere they went every day, every other day, whenever they left. So they had their wives there by there. Okay, we'll be back tonight. We'll bring you, uh, you want two pieces of cheese on yours? Okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back and... So they came in from the battle. They had a good battle. They won a battle, had a bunch of spoil. But when it came back to Ziklag, you know the story. Talk about depression. When it came back to Ziklag, they saw that everybody was gone. There was smoke and ruins. The tents were burned. Everything that they had was missing. They saw no blood on the ground. And nobody it looked like had been killed. There was no dead bodies anywhere, but all their children Whatever they had, all their goods, their gold, their silver, their apparel, their, everything they had was gone. They had no clue where it went or who did it. They didn't know what direction to go or how to find out who it is. And they're all weary and tired, and they're all just completely broke down. I mean, they're just weary. And here's what it says. 1 Samuel chapter 30 Verse 3, so David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. I don't know if you can see that story. I mean, they were, they reached down with all they had to weep with all the passion they could weep with until there was nothing left. We are so brokenhearted we can't even weep anymore. Everything that is lovely to us and a treasure to us is gone. 
We can always steal more goats and calves and more, but our families, our wives, the people we enjoy being with, they're, they're all gone. And they wept, the Bible said, until they couldn't weep anymore. Now, let me ask you something. Were they depressed? You know why they were depressed? Because they didn't know what to do. They had no clue as to what to do. And because of the human instinct and the human way in this world, all they knew to do was be sorrowful about their loss. There's nothing wrong with that. Sorrow is not a bad thing. But they wept until there was nothing else that they could do. And it says in verse 6, and David was greatly distressed. How could a man like David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, how could he be distressed? I don't think there has ever been in the history of anything that was worthy of leadership that didn't have a leader who didn't get stressed and depressed often. I don't even know if it's possible to properly lead, especially the church, to lead anybody without experiencing moments, lots of moments, more than people will ever know, of depression. I'm not going to talk about it personally. I've been there more than I want to talk about. Just so much you feel like weight that hangs on you and over you. You're responsible for so much. People really do depend on you. A lot of people moved here to hear what you have to say. It left everything. And you carry that. And you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to mess up. You don't want to make bad decisions. You don't want people to lose their confidence in what God has shown you to do. Sometimes you do the right thing and you feel like you've done the wrong thing and you grieve over it. And God makes sure that nobody comes up and tells you how much they love you and how wonderful you are. He just makes them all leave you alone. Because he wants you to follow him, not because you are such a man, but because whether you know it or not, you're an unworthy and unprofitable servant. You have no boast. You need no boast. God will not share his glory with anybody. And everybody that God uses will have to go there. There's that place where you go to die to self. There's that place you go when you put on the tombstone only your initials and that's it. He must increase, you must decrease. It's all about God. And you get no boast. You get your reward on the other side. But in the meantime, boy, you wonder, is it working? Will I ever? Is it any good? He said here in verse 6. Go back to verse 6. David was greatly distressed. David was greatly distressed. The word means a state of anxiety or fear, frustration. Why? Well, here's two reasons why. Because one, the loss of his family. And secondly, the very people that have get laid down their lives for him were following him even to the death. It says... The soul of the people were grieved, every man for his son and for his daughter. They had even decided in another verse that they were going to stone him. David, following you, oh, it was fun when we were whooping everybody. 
Now we, we got whooped. Whipped. Whooped or whipped? Whipped. I mean, you're David. You're the one that can't do anything wrong. You can mess up and it's okay. And we're following you. You could have killed Saul two or three times. We admire you for your whatever you got. But man, you're not worth my family and the loss of all my stuff. I'm not going to lose everything and say, well, you know, we're just following David. Praise the Lord. No. We messed up following you. We need to go back to Saul and tell him we're sorry. We ought to stone you. How many of you believe that David was distressed? Oh, God. I don't think so much he was scared of those people. I don't think he was really scared of losing their friendship. I'm sure that was a part of it. But the fact that he felt like he failed. I didn't do this well. I'll tell you something, and I, I shouldn't say this. I should not, but I will. One of the things that plagues my mind is after all these years when it's over, I don't want to feel like a failure. But sometimes you can't take credit for anything. What did you do right? Look how many people left that didn't stay. Look how many people that stayed didn't make it. They sat under you. Wow. What about that? And there's David. The Bible said David was greatly distressed and, dis and discouraged. But you know what it says he did in verse 6? What does it say that David did? David packed his little suitcase and snuck off in the night where nobody knew where he was going. And he fled to the Philistines so that he could get away from his friends because he was so afraid of them. Now, David, the Bible says David did what? A man whose distress should do. You encourage yourself in the Lord. You encourage yourself in the Lord. I don't think a man can lead. I don't think anybody is worthy to lead anybody. I think a leadership necessity is courage. You've got to be willing to do what you believe is right. Be willing to change if you're wrong. You can't just be hard-headed and belligerent, but at the same time, you can't move with everybody's suggestions either. You've got to have courage. When the Bible said David encouraged himself in the Lord, it's the same word that was used in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 9 where God told Joshua concerning his leadership. He said, be strong and very courageous. You're not going to see people that are always for you. They won't always be on your side. They won't always look admirably at you or even appreciate what you do. They're going to murmur and complain just like they did for 40 years in the wilderness. God said they're going to do it. I have to drive them out of the promised land. So don't let those people get you down. Say what you got to say. Take it where you got to take it, whether they want to go or not. Now, he didn't say it like that. But you've got to have that courage. A man or a woman of courage will never quit. Never. Because you have learned, as a Christian, you have learned that God has a supply to supply you with 
that will not only strengthen you, but will enable you to make it through all your tomorrows. God will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He won't leave you there, but he'll make sure you go there. He'll make sure that you go there. So as we said a while ago about Peter, don't think it's strange. Nobody can lead anybody without courage. Courage doesn't always mean you're really sure about what you're doing. Sometimes you can only believe you're right. If you're teachable and somebody can show you, point out that you're wrong, okay, fine, we'll do that. It's just like in a, in a home. A man should be the head of his house and make the decisions. If he makes a wrong decision, he has nobody to blame but himself. But if he's a wise man and he married a wise woman, he will at least talk to her. I'm getting ready to do this. What do you think? Now, her advice may be yucky. I'm going to get shot here in a minute. but <laughs> Women drive in a different gear than men do. Okay, that didn't go either, but men have a way of dealing with things in life differently than women. Women can tell a story detailed. Men tell a story with highlights. And a wise man who's married an intelligent woman will ask for her advice. He may not agree with me. He said, okay, you know, at least I've done this. Here's what I'm going to do. Same thing is true when you lead like a people with Joshua, Moses. A man more depressed than any man. Moses. Look what he had to deal with. They were the hardest-headed bunch of people in all of history. I mean, yeah, they even made a calf and told the people, made a gold-looking, ignorant something and held it up and said, here's your God. This is who brought you out of Egypt. It did not. That was an earring in one of them guys' ears. And you say that that's a God? But people will believe that because they will follow an easier way always. You can never allow yourself, if you have courage, you can never allow yourself to go an easy way. If they all leave, though none go with me, you got to go anyway. Whether you're a member of a church that you got to leave because it's going a different direction, or if you're leading and nobody wants to follow, you still have to go. Do you understand what I'm saying? David was looking at some bad situation, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord, probably by thinking back in his life. See, they recovered all of this later on. It's a wonderful story. Go back to chapter 17. He probably was thinking about chapter 17 in 1 Samuel. David encouraged himself in the Lord. David, his heart would say, you remember that time in the valley of Elah? Say, where, Lord? Elah, you know, where that big old giant was. Remember the Philistines? Bonnie and I drove by this one time. I keep telling you all that. I wish we had stopped. But there was this, way over yonder was a ridge, and our bus is driving by the ridge on the other side, and there's this long valley that goes up on that ridge. The Philistines are over there. God's people in battle array with swords and spears and all the appropriate stuff over here as fighters, they're equipped for war. And they're all scared and they're all dismayed. There's not a worthy fighter in the whole bunch. Oh, they look good. They go to church. I mean, uh, uh, they are dressed right. They got all of that. 
But they're not even willing to get out there and, and go with it. And you know the story. There's this big, ugly giant. He must have been a big, ugly something. And he would come out, verse 9, and he would come out and he said, well, let me get verse 8. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set yourself in battle array? Am not I a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. And if he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. And then he said these words. He said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. You're a bunch of quitters. You're a bunch of scaredy cats. When the heat comes, you will tuck your tails and you will run because you don't believe that you can do all that stuff that your God told you you could do. It just happened that this is the way it was. The army was scared. The army was frightened. The army was in dismay. They not only could lose themselves in the battle, but all their family, their children, everything they have, their territory. They can lose everything because the obstacle to them was a giant. And you know the story. Here comes David, a, a teenager. One of y'all, a kid. His daddy told him to take some food to his brothers that were in the army. And David comes into camp and he sees that giant come out and talking like that. And he said, who's that? What's he doing? So that's giant. Anybody that kills him can have a lot of riches and have the king's daughter to boot. And then I'm sure I'm making this part up. David looked around at all these guys fighting and thought, well, what's wrong with everybody? Why aren't we fighting? And when his brothers saw him talking to guys and they said to him, what are you doing here? You're just coming to watch a battle because you don't care. And he said to his brother, what have I done wrong? So he asked another person, what is all this? Who is this guy? See, this is a story God's showing us. We've heard it many times. We're like that sometimes ourselves. We'd like to take a step of faith, but boy, there's a giant right in front of you. And as you estimate yourself and your strength, if I had the kids here tonight, this guy's three foot taller than I am. Now, I could reach eight and a half feet, and he was another hand beyond that. That's pretty big. His spear, the head of his spear, weighed 19 pounds. Now, a shot put in track and field, they throw the shot. A shot weighs eight pounds. And the strongest men in the world can get it a little bit past 70 feet. This guy had a spear. The head of his spear weighed 19 pounds. And I'm sure he knew how to throw it and could throw it. His armor, his coat of mail weighed 150 pounds. How would you like to carry that around? Well, you, if you were 10 feet tall, that wouldn't be much. And he's all decked out and all that stuff, fearful-looking thing, just like your trials are. Just like sickness and disease is. It, oh, it's a horror. Oh, I'm so scared. Oh. That's the way the Israelites were. And David said, now these are my words, who does he think he is? 
Somebody said, what'd you say, boy? A teenager like you fellows over here in the front row, almost teenagers. I said, what'd you say? I said, why is this uncircumcised Philistine allowed to defy us and talk about us like that? That's not right. A kid, a teenager. And he said, that's not the way it should be. These people, in verse 11, were dismayed, but now they were hot because a message came out that we can do all things through Christ. And the people that received the message said, you're not in the real world. You don't know what you're talking about. That faith message is you. Is it? And it said, David in verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of this, this giant. Your servant will go out and fight with him. And I'm sure the guy looked and said, you? you? A kid? You want all these several thousand men to bank their future and the well-being of their homes and whether or not they're going to be in servitude the rest of their life on a kid? on something that doesn't measure up in our eyes that God brings in your life to deliver you? You want me to trust in a kid? I don't know about that. And Saul said, you're just a boy. He said, well, I might be a boy. I can't deny that. But, you know, I'm keeping my dad's sheep. One day a bear came, and I killed him. Another time a lion came to get one of the sheep. I killed the lion too. I wasn't scared. I didn't run. I didn't back off. I didn't give up because it was something bigger than I am. I killed him. This giant would be no different. So he said, I put my armor on him. Put my armor upon him. He said in verse 38 and 39, David girded his sword upon his armor and he started out to go and when he got carrying all that armor, he said, I can't fight in this. I've never proved it. I mean, I don't even know how to wear this stuff. So they took the helmet off and all that heavy breastplate off, you know, in case arrows get shot at you, this will help stop them. I don't want that. I'm not going out there with the weapons of man. And I'm sure these soldiers are thinking, you know, this is the worst move King Saul has ever made. We, if we run now, we got a chance to escape. This kid, this kid's going to be meat for that guy. Can you imagine David walking out in the middle of that valley and reaching down into that stream and getting him five smooth stones and putting them in his purse? Now, a stone might have been that big around. You've seen in the news clips some of those riots over in Israel. A sling might be that long with a little pouch on the end, and you swirl it around, and you let go of one end of the pouch, and some of them are really good with it. They're real accurate. So David reached down and got him a rock. A God-made rock. And he walked out there and he told the giant. You know the story about the giant said, what am I, a dog? That you should come with me with sticks? Or that little old piece of leather you got in your hand? Am I supposed to fight that? So he said to him, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds this day. And the Bible said the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Listen to what my boy said. I got a boy named David. This is what he said. Then David said to Philistine, you come to me with a sword, 
and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And this day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you and will take your head from thee, and I will give you carcasses to the host of the Philistines this day. And he said, and then all the world may know that there is a God in heaven who rules. Verse 7, and this assembly shall know that God doesn't save with swords and spears. God doesn't save with guns and weapons. God saves by his power and his might. David took that rock, and I can see that giant walking out there mad. I'm going to break this kid in two with my hands first. Or maybe it went thud. All that armor on, all that carefully made stuff to keep arrows from killing him. And a rock, a God-made, manufactured-by-heaven rock hit him right square in his head. Liberals like to say, well, he had a tumor in his head, and it was real soft, and the rock hit it. Right. Tumor went every which direction when that rock went in there. He knocked him all the way down, knocked him out. And David went over there, took his sword, stood on top of him. I wouldn't want to watch this. And did a number on him. Not only did he cut his head off, but he carried it back home with him. And when Saul called him in to meet him who he was, he carried it in there with Saul. I don't know about that. (laughs) Walking around carrying some old giant's head, old greasy haired thing, shoot. You know what the moral of the story is? God will deliver his people, not with many, sometimes with just one person. But one person has to have enough courage to not be afraid and to know in his heart that God is bigger than life, bigger than your problem, bigger than your debt, bigger than your marriage, bigger than your children, bigger than your job, bigger than your spiritual needs. God is bigger than everything in your life. And if you'll have courage, as I said a while ago, and trust him, God will deliver you just like he did for David. Now, I think when David encouraged himself on the hillside, I bet he was thinking, remember when that giant came out against you? Remember there was no hope? Everybody here was scared. Even the soldiers were afraid to fight. Nobody was going to fight. We were going to lose. Remember how God blessed you and you killed that giant, and then all of a sudden the soldiers went, yeah! I don't know if they did that. But the soldiers saw when David cut his head off and the Philistines went, ah, they took off running. The soldiers said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, here they came in. They started smiting the Philistines. They won a battle. They could have won it all the time. One man couldn't kill the army unless he was Samson. I mean, he couldn't do it. But they were so afraid of one man one problem in their life, of one circumstance, one situation, there was just some giant in your life that makes you afraid, that terrifies you. And God whooped him with a kid, with a kid. And the people gained strength from that. Remember the story of Joshua at Ai? Just tell me you did. They had just beaten Jericho. And after Jericho, they began to conquering the land. The next little place up the road was a place called Ai. 
And as the biblical narrative goes, they came to David and said, we don't need to take a bunch of men up there, two or 3,000 is plenty. I mean, AI is not very big. And he said, okay, take two or 3,000, go up there and do it. Well, they went up there with two or 3,000 men and they fled from them. They were defeated and they began to run back home and they came back and they were downtrodden and defeated. They lost the battle. And in the process, 36 innocent men died. And this unconquerable around Jericho, through the Red Sea, through the Jordan, with all these mental experiences and all of that, now they lost everything. They sat under the faith message for 20 years and gave it up in one night. Boy, something is really shallow, isn't it? Here's what they said to it in Joshua chapter 7. Alas, Lord God, why have you at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. He said that, Joshua, in verse 7. Now, because he's a leader, he said this. Leaders have this problem. Oh, Lord, what shall I say? When Israel turneth their back before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall surround us. And they shall defeat us. And then what's going to happen to all this great name of the Lord? I mean, what will that mean anymore? You know what God said, said to him? He said in verse 10, he said, Joshua, get up. Get up. Get thee up. God spoke in those days. God talked. However, how he talked, he talked. Get up, Joshua. He said, the problem you have is there is sin in the camp. There's things that you should have dealt with that you didn't deal with. You would have dealt with it if before you went on this last invasion to Ai, if you'd come to me like my people should and inquire of the Lord, what should I do about Ai? How shall we fight this battle? God would have probably told him, you cannot fight this battle because you got sin in the camp. Achan stole all that stuff back at Jericho and brought a curse on the nation. 36 men who had nothing to do with stealing. Just 36 innocent men, 36 grieving mothers because one man hid a bar of gold and some clothes that he got from Jericho, oh man, and brought this curse on the whole nation. And God said, I'm angry with you. I think as much the fact that you didn't inquire of me and wait for my counsel, we're like that. I mean, we are. We don't pray about half of what we do. You know, we just assume, you know, well, we're, we're Christians. We, you know, blood of Jesus. Or, you know, well, we just, you know, everybody's scared of us. God's for us. And so we'll go up there to AI. They'll probably all faint and have a heart attack and die. And they beat Israel, sent them back down to Jericho, hurt, wounded. 36 brothers had died. And now they're wanting to quit. We should have stayed over on the other side of Jordan. When a while we came over here, you big baby. 
The problem is there's sin in the camp. And if you had stopped and asked counsel of God before you did what you did and prayed about it first and waited on the Lord to counsel with you, speak to you, open your heart and eyes to show you something, that wouldn't have happened. I would have shown you what to do first in your own camp. No, no, no. You are smarter than everybody else. You know what they did to Achan? You know the story. They brought Achan out. Did you steal that? Yes. He said, all right, go get his sons and his daughters. Go get all of his sheep and his donkeys. Get his tent and whatever furniture and every, any, all of his possessions. Put them all together. I want the whole family right here. And the nation of Israel gathered around and stoned them with stones. All of them died. Even his sons died because of his sin. I wonder how many times our depression in our lives is because we're missing God and don't want to admit it. Or we have sinned in some insignificant way. You know, we think God's like us. So, I mean, that's not a big deal. I mean, come on. So we treat God as human and instead of divine. And things don't go well for us. But the reason they didn't go well, because they took matters into their own hands and didn't seek after God plus that man had stole that stuff. So you see, depression has many ways of coming, many ways of defining itself. So we come down to the finally, what's the remedy for all this? We're sitting here tonight, we're getting ready to go home. We've been here many times in our lives. We're loyal about coming to church twice a week. We've heard a lot of things, nothing you've heard tonight was new. So what do we take home with us tonight? Turn to 1 Peter again. First Peter. We didn't even talk about Psalm 77. I'll leave that for another time. Lord, has your mercy clean gone? Have you quit on us, God? Are we done? It feels like it. We'll save that for some other time. But in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. And I rest my case with this. He said, casting all your care over on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You can quote that. You've heard that many times in your life. I cast all my cares upon you. We sing it. I don't know that we do it. Because if you do that, then you leave it where you cast it. You quit carrying it around and grieving about it and whining and crying and murmuring and being fretful and fearful about it because you put it over on the hands of the Lord. He's quoting here Psalm 55, verse 22, which is where this verse came from. Casting all your care, your anxieties, Everything that troubles you in this room tonight, those of you watching, everything that's bothering you, uh, trying to control you, ruin your testimony, and show us what you're not. Here's an answer. Cast all your care over on him. One night we were in here praying for Brother Terry. And that verse, it came to me strong. I mean, it came force the word did 
course, I'm praying, you know, and praying and praying and praying. And then I heard that. Won't you give me that? Give it to me. I know how to take care of it. All you know to do is talk about it. I don't know how to deal with it. Now, if you give it to me, don't take it back. You leave it here. Let me take care of it. And you start acting by faith. You start acting like God has my problem. I've cast it over on him. God will take care of it because he's faithful. Therefore, I am going to rejoice now. Not because I see any change, but because I believe that he's got it. Let me read it from another translation. It's an amplified Bible. I don't encourage you to get it. I don't endorse it. But this verse, the Amplified Bible does amplify the meaning of these words and says it like this. Casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on him, for he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. If you believe that, you'll do that. If you really believe he cares that he's watching and that he wants to be in your life as the power of God himself, that he wants to be like that and for you to experience that in your life, then he'll do that. Casting all your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns once and for all on him. For he cares for you affectionately and he is very much involved watching how you live. He knows your every need, doesn't he? And my God shall supply all your need. Amen. We have an easy reason tonight to worship because Jesus took my is that still a song people say? Jesus took my burden and he rolled him in the sea. Rolled him in the sea. Quit fishing. Stay away from the water. Did he take your burdens? Or will you walk out of here heavy tonight? Will you walk out of here laden down with, oh God, oh God. And when people talk to you, I don't know. Will you be like that? That's who you are. After all these years of being in church, that's who you really, really are. That's where you are. Nothing has ever changed. There's no courage taking place. You're still weak, living weak. You've probably given up, backed off way too many times. And yet tonight, I believe God is saying, make a new stand. Make a new stand. Regrip that plow. Squeeze it till you get splinters in your hands. And hold on and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you for all of my tomorrows, for the thing I'm going through now, the things that I'm dealing with now, Lord. I don't know how you're going to take care of this, but I cast it over on you. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that anymore. And when it comes, I'm just going to say, praise God. Praise the Lord. What are you praising for? For the victory. Have you seen it yet? Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That's the way we live. We live as though what God says is indeed what we can expect God to do. Praise the Lord. Your children, that's no match for God. God is bigger than your children than a giant was to the Israelites. He's bigger. God can take any of our children. 
any of these he-men on the front row here, he could take any of our children and go, they're probably going to be a prophet now. He can do that. Well, if he can do that, as I told it, I cast all my little bitty tiny concerns over on the Lord. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, we're thankful tonight for your word. We believe when the psalmist said, Oh, send out thy light and thy truth and let them lead me, that that's what it does. If we'll believe it, if we'll truly believe it, that's what we'll take our courage in, that God will do what he said. Father, these people that are sitting here, they're watching, listening. They're not mine, they're yours. They're your people, wherever they are. Everybody in this room has some sort of a need. Some of their needs just seem way out of reach, but they're not. And I ask for you to pay a visit to all of us, that kind of visit that brings assurance that brings certainty in our life, that puts a smile on our face. It causes hope to spring eternal, saying, I know that it shall be even as it was told me. And we shall triumph daily in Christ. I ask you to bless them like that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.